Man's Search for Meaning by Victor E. Frankel continued. Disc three. The outside life, that is, as much as he could see of it, appeared to him almost as it might have to a dead man who looked at it from another world. A man who let himself decline because he could not see any future goal found himself occupied with retrospective thoughts. In a different connection, we have already spoken of the tendency there was to look into the past, to help make the present with all its horrors less real. But in robbing the present of its reality there lay a certain danger. It became easy to overlook the opportunities to make something positive of camp life, opportunities which really did exist. Regarding our provisional existence as unreal was in itself an important factor in causing the prisoners to lose their hold on life. Everything in a way became pointless. Such people forget that often it is just such an exceptionally difficult external situation which gives man the opportunity to grow spiritually beyond himself. Instead of taking the camp's difficulties as a test of their inner strength, they did not take their life seriously and despised it as something of no consequence. They preferred to close their eyes and to live in the past. Life for such people became meaningless. Naturally, only a few people were capable of reaching great spiritual heights, but a few were given the chance to attain human greatness even through their apparent worldly failure and death, an accomplishment which in ordinary circumstances they would never have achieved. To the others of us, the mediocre and the half-hearted, the words of Bismarck could be applied. Life is like being at the dentist. You always think that the worst is still to come, and yet it is over already. Varying this, we could say that most men in a concentration camp believed that the real opportunities of life had passed, yet in reality there was an opportunity and a challenge. One could make a victory of these experiences, turning life into an inner triumph, or one could ignore the challenge and simply vegetate, as did a majority of the prisoners. Any attempt at fighting the camp's psychopathological influence on the prisoner by psychotherapeutic or psychohygienic methods had to aim at giving him inner strength by pointing out to him a future goal to which he could look forward. Instinctively, some of the prisoners attempted to find one on their own. It is a peculiarity of man that he can only live by looking to the future, subspecie eternitatis. And this is his salvation in the most difficult moments of his existence although he sometimes has to force his mind to the task. I remember a personal experience. Almost in tears from pain—I had terrible sores on my feet from wearing torn shoes—I limped a few kilometres with our long column of men from the camp to our work site. Very cold, bitter winds struck us. I kept thinking of the endless little problems of our miserable life. What would there be to eat tonight? If a piece of sausage came as an extra ration, should I exchange it for a piece of bread? Should I trade my last cigarette, which was left from a bonus I received a fortnight ago, for a bowl of soup? How could I get a piece of wire to replace the fragment which served as one of my shoelaces? Would I get to our work site in time to join my usual working party, or would I have to join another which might have a brutal foreman? What could I do to get on good terms with the capo? who could help me to obtain work in camp instead of undertaking this horribly long daily march. I became disgusted with the state of affairs which compelled me, daily and hourly, 
to think of only such trivial things. I forced my thoughts to turn to another subject. Suddenly I saw myself standing on the platform of a well-lit, warm and pleasant lecture-room. In front of me sat an attentive audience on comfortable, upholstered seats. I was giving a lecture on the psychology of the concentration camp. All that oppressed me at that moment became objective, seen and described from the remote viewpoint of science. By this method I succeeded somehow in rising above the situation, above the sufferings of the moment, and I observed them as if they were already of the past. Both I and my troubles became the object of an interesting psycho-scientific study undertaken by myself. What does Spinoza say in his Ethics? Affectus qui passio est, desinit esse passio simulatque eus clarum et distinctam formamus ideam. Emotion, which is suffering, ceases to be suffering as soon as we form a clear and precise picture of it. The prisoner who had lost faith in the future, his future, was doomed. With his loss of belief in the future, he also lost his spiritual hold. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. Usually this happened quite suddenly, in the form of a crisis, the symptoms of which were familiar to the experienced camp inmate. We all feared this moment, not for ourselves, which would have been pointless, but for our friends. Usually it began with the prisoner refusing one morning to get dressed and wash, or to go out on the parade grounds. No entreaties, no blows, no threats had any effect. He just lay there, hardly moving. If this crisis was brought about by an illness, he refused to be taken to the sick bay, or to do anything to help himself. He simply gave up. There he remained, lying in his own excreta, and nothing bothered him any more. I once had a dramatic demonstration of the close link between the loss of faith in the future and this dangerous giving up. F., my senior block warden, a fairly well-known composer and librettist, confided in me one day, "'I would like to tell you something, doctor. I have had a strange dream. A voice told me that I could wish for something, that I should only say what I wanted to know, and all my questions would be answered. What do you think I asked? That I would like to know when the war would be over for me. You know what I mean, doctor, for me. I wanted to know when we, when our camp, would be liberated and our sufferings come to an end. And when did you have this dream? I asked. In February 1945, he answered. It was then the beginning of March. What did your dream voice answer? Furtively he whispered to me, March 30th. When F. told me about his dream, he was still full of hope, and convinced that the voice of his dream would be right. But as the promised day drew nearer, the war news which reached our camp made it appear very unlikely that we would be free on the promised date. On March 29th, F. suddenly became ill and ran a high temperature. On March 30th, the day his prophecy had told him that the war and suffering would be over for him, he became delirious and lost consciousness. On March 31st he was dead. To all outward appearances he had died of typhus. Those who know how close the connection is between the state of mind of a man, his courage and hope or lack of them, and the state of immunity of his body, will understand that the sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect. 
The ultimate cause of my friend's death was that the expected liberation did not come, and he was severely disappointed. This suddenly lowered his body's resistance against the latent typhus infection. His faith in the future and his will to live had become paralyzed, and his body fell victim to illness, and thus the voice of his dream was right after all. The observations of this one case and the conclusion drawn from them are in accordance with something that was drawn to my attention by the chief doctor of our concentration camp. The death rate in the week between Christmas 1944 and New Year's 1945 increased in camp beyond all previous experience. In his opinion, the explanation for this increase did not lie in the harder working conditions or the deterioration of our food supplies, or a change of weather or new epidemics. It was simply that the majority of the prisoners had lived in the naive hope that they would be home again by Christmas. As the time drew near, and there was no encouraging news, the prisoners lost courage and disappointment overcame them. This had a dangerous influence on their powers of resistance, and a great number of them died. As we said before, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in the camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. Nietzsche's words, He who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how, could be the guiding motto for all psychotherapeutic and psychohygienic efforts regarding prisoners. Whenever there was an opportunity for it, one had to give them a why, an aim for their lives, in order to strengthen them to bear the terrible how of their existence. Woe to him who saw no more sense in his life, no aim, no purpose, and therefore no point in carrying on. He was soon lost. The typical reply with which such a man rejected all encouraging arguments was, I have nothing to expect from life any more. What sort of answer can one give to that? What was really needed was a fundamental change in our attitude toward life. We had to learn ourselves, and furthermore we had to teach the despairing men that it did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life, and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life, daily and hourly. Our answer must consist not in talk and meditation, but in right action and in right conduct. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problems, and to fulfill the tasks which it constantly sets for each individual. These tasks, and therefore the meaning of life, differ from man to man and from moment to moment. Thus it is impossible to define the meaning of life in a general way. Questions about the meaning of life can never be answered by sweeping statements. Life does not mean something vague, but something very real and concrete, just as life's tasks are also very real and concrete. They form man's destiny, which is different and unique for each individual. No man and no destiny can be compared with any other man or any other destiny. No situation repeats itself, and each situation calls for a different response. Sometimes the situation in which a man finds himself may require him to shape his own fate by action. At other times it is more advantageous for him to make use of an opportunity for contemplation, and to realize assets in this way. Sometimes man may be required simply to accept fate, to bear his cross. Every situation is distinguished by its uniqueness, 
and there is always only one right answer to the problem posed by the situation at hand. When a man finds that it is his destiny to suffer, he will have to accept his suffering as his task, his single and unique task. He will have to acknowledge the fact that even in suffering he is unique and alone in the universe. No one can relieve him of his suffering or suffer in his place. His unique opportunity lies in the way in which he bears his burden. For us, as prisoners, these thoughts were not speculations far removed from reality. They were the only thoughts that could be of help to us. They kept us from despair, even when there seemed to be no chance of coming out of it alive. Long ago we had passed the stage of asking what was the meaning of life, a naive query which understands life as the attaining of some aim through the active creation of something of value. For us, the meaning of life embraced the wider cycles of life and death, of suffering and dying. Once the meaning of suffering had been revealed to us, we refused to minimize or alleviate the camp's tortures by ignoring them or harboring false illusions and entertaining artificial optimism. Suffering had become a task on which we did not want to turn our backs. We had realized its hidden opportunities for achievement, the opportunities which caused the poet Rilke to write, Wie viel ist aufzuleiden? How much suffering there is to get through. Rilke spoke of getting through suffering as others would talk of getting through work. There was plenty of suffering for us to get through. Therefore, it was necessary to face up to the full amount of suffering, trying to keep moments of weakness and furtive tears to a minimum. But there was no need to be ashamed of tears, for tears bore witness that a man had the greatest of courage, the courage to suffer. Only very few realized that. Shamefacedly, some confessed occasionally that they had wept, like the comrade who answered my question of how he had gotten over his edema by confessing, I have wept it out of my system. The tender beginnings of a psychotherapy or psychohygiene were, when they were possible at all in the camp, either individual or collective in nature. The individual psychotherapeutic attempts were often a kind of life-saving procedure. These efforts were usually concerned with the prevention of suicides. A very strict camp ruling forbade any efforts to save a man who attempted suicide. It was forbidden, for example, to cut down a man who was trying to hang himself. Therefore it was all important to prevent these attempts from occurring. I remember two cases of would-be suicide which bore a striking similarity to each other. Both men had talked of their intentions to commit suicide. Both used the typical argument they had nothing more to expect from life. In both cases, it was a question of getting them to realize that life was still expecting something from them. Something in the future was expected of them. We found, in fact, that for the one it was his child whom he adored, and who was waiting for him in a foreign country. For the other it was a thing, not a person. This man was a scientist and had written a series of books which still needed to be finished. His work could not be done by anyone else, any more than another person could ever take the place of the father in his child's affections. This uniqueness and singleness which distinguishes each individual and gives a meaning to his existence has a bearing on creative work as much as it does on human love. When the impossibility of replacing a person is realized, it allows the responsibility which a man has for his existence and its continuance to appear in all its magnitude. 
A man who becomes conscious of the responsibility he bears toward a human being who affectionately waits for him, or to an unfinished work, will never be able to throw away his life. He knows the why for his existence, and will be able to bear almost any how. The opportunities for collective psychotherapy were naturally limited in camp. The right example was more effective than words could ever be. A senior block warden who did not side with the authorities had, by his just and encouraging behavior, a thousand opportunities to exert a far-reaching moral influence on those under his jurisdiction. The immediate influence of behavior is always more effective than that of words. But at times a word was effective too, when mental receptiveness had been intensified by some outer circumstances. I remember an incident when there was occasion for psychotherapeutic work on the inmates of a whole hut, due to an intensification of their receptiveness because of a certain external situation. It had been a bad day. On parade, an announcement had been made about the many actions that would, from then on, be regarded as sabotage and therefore punishable by immediate death by hanging. Among these were crimes such as cutting small strips from our old blankets, in order to improvise ankle supports, and very minor thefts. A few days previously a semi-starved prisoner had broken into the potato store to steal a few pounds of potatoes. The theft had been discovered, and some prisoners had recognized the burglar. When the camp authorities heard about it, they ordered that the guilty man be given up to them, or the whole camp would starve for a day. Naturally, the two and a half thousand men preferred to fast. On the evening of this day of fasting we lay in our earthen huts, in a very low mood. Very little was said, and every word sounded irritable. Then, to make matters even worse, the light went out. Tempers reached their lowest ebb. But our senior block warden was a wise man. He improvised a little talk about all that was on our minds at that moment. He talked about the many comrades who had died in the last few days, either of sickness or of suicide but he also mentioned what may have been the real reason for their deaths, giving up hope. He maintained that there should be some way of preventing possible future victims from reaching this extreme state, and it was to me that the warden pointed to give this advice. God knows I was not in the mood to give psychological explanations, or to preach any sermons, to offer my comrades a kind of medical care of their souls. I was cold and hungry, irritable and tired, but I had to make the effort and use this unique opportunity. Encouragement was now more necessary than ever. So I began by mentioning the most trivial of comforts first. I said that even in this Europe, in the sixth winter of the Second World War, our situation was not the most terrible we could think of. I said that each of us had to ask himself what irreplaceable losses he had suffered up to then. I speculated that for most of them these losses had really been few. Whoever was still alive had reason for hope—health, family, happiness, professional abilities, fortune, position in society—all these were things that could be achieved again or restored. After all, we still had all our bones intact. Whatever we had gone through could still be an asset to us in the future. And I quoted from Nietzsche, Was mich nicht umbringt? macht mich stärker. That which does not kill me makes me stronger. Then I spoke about the future. 
I said that to the impartial the future must seem hopeless. I agreed that each of us could guess for himself how small were his chances of survival. I told them that, although there was still no typhus epidemic in the camp, I estimated my own chances at about one in twenty. But I also told them that, in spite of this, I had no intention of losing hope and giving up. For no man knew what the future would bring, much less the next hour. Even if we could not expect any sensational military events in the next few days, who knew better than we, with our experience of camps, how great chances sometimes opened up, quite suddenly, at least for the individual? For instance, one might be attached unexpectedly to a special group with exceptionally good working conditions, for this was the kind of thing which constituted the luck of the prisoner. But I did not only talk of the future and the veil which was drawn over it, I also mentioned the past, all its joys, and how its light shone even in the present darkness. Again I quoted a poet, to avoid sounding like a preacher myself, who had written, Was du erliebst, kann keine Macht der Welt dir rauben. What you have experienced, no power on earth can take from you. Not only our experiences, but all we have done, whatever great thoughts we may have had, and all we have suffered, all this is not lost, though it is past. We have brought it into being. Having been is also a kind of being, and perhaps the surest kind. Then I spoke of the many opportunities of giving life a meaning. I told my comrades, who lay motionless, although occasionally a sigh could be heard, that human life, under any circumstances, never ceases to have a meaning, and that this infinite meaning of life includes suffering and dying, privation and death. I asked the poor creatures who listened to me attentively in the darkness of the hut to face up to the seriousness of our position. They must not lose hope, but should keep their courage in the certainty that the hopelessness of our struggle did not detract from its dignity and its meaning. I said that someone looks down on each of us in difficult hours, a friend, a wife, somebody alive or dead, or a god, and he would not expect us to disappoint him. He would hope to find us suffering proudly, not miserably, knowing how to die. And finally I spoke of our sacrifice, which had meaning in every case. It was in the nature of this sacrifice that it should appear to be pointless in the normal world, the world of material success. But in reality our sacrifice did have a meaning. Those of us who had any religious faith, I said frankly, could understand without difficulty. I told them of a comrade who on his arrival in camp had tried to make a pact with heaven that his suffering and death should save the human being he loved from a painful end. For this man suffering and death were meaningful. His was a sacrifice of the deepest significance. He did not want to die for nothing. None of us wanted that. The purpose of my words was to find a full meaning in our life, then and there, in that hut, and in that practically hopeless situation. I saw that my efforts had been successful. When the electric bulb flared up again, I saw the miserable figures of my friends limping toward me to thank me with tears in their eyes. But I have to confess here that only too rarely had I the inner strength to make contact with my companions in suffering and that I must have missed many opportunities for doing so. We now come to the third stage of a prisoner's mental reactions, the psychology of the prisoner after his liberation. 
But prior to that, we shall consider a question which the psychologist is asked frequently, especially when he has personal knowledge of these matters. What can you tell us about the psychological makeup of the camp guards? How is it possible that men of flesh and blood could treat others as so many prisoners say they have been treated? Having once heard these accounts, and having come to believe that these things did happen, one is bound to ask how, psychologically, they could happen. To answer this question without going into great detail, a few things must be pointed out. First, among the guards there were some sadists, sadists in the purest clinical sense. Second, these sadists were always selected when a really severe detachment of guards was needed. There was great joy at our work site when we had permission to warm ourselves for a few minutes, after two hours of work in the bitter frost, in front of a little stove which was fed with twigs and scraps of wood. But there were also some foremen who found a great pleasure in taking this comfort from us. How clearly their faces reflected this pleasure when they not only forbade us to stand there, but turned over the stove and dumped its lovely fire into the snow. When the SS took a dislike to a person, there was always some special man in their ranks known to have a passion for, and to be highly specialized in, sadistic torture to whom the unfortunate prisoner was sent. Third, the feelings of the majority of the guards had been dulled by the number of years in which, in ever-increasing doses, they had witnessed the brutal methods of the camp. These morally and mentally hardened men at least refused to take active part in sadistic measures, but they did not prevent others from carrying them out. Fourth, it must be stated that even among the guards there were some who took pity on us. I shall only mention the commander of the camp from which I was liberated. It was found after the liberation, only the camp doctor, a prisoner himself had known of it previously, that this man had paid no small sum of money from his own pocket in order to purchase medicines for his prisoners from the nearest market town. But the senior camp warden, a prisoner himself, was harder than any of the SS guards. He beat the other prisoners at every slightest opportunity, while the camp commander, to my knowledge, never once lifted his hand against any of us. There is a footnote here. An interesting incident with reference to this SS commander is in regard to the attitude toward him of some of his Jewish prisoners. At the end of the war, when the American troops liberated the prisoners from our camp, three young Hungarian Jews hid this commander in the Bavarian woods. Then they went to the commandant of the American forces, who was very eager to capture this SS commander, and they said they would tell him where he was, but only under certain conditions. The American commander must promise that absolutely no harm would come to this man. After a while, the American officer finally promised these young Jews that the SS commander, when taken into captivity, would be kept safe from harm. Not only did the American officer keep his promise, but, as a matter of fact, the former SS commander of this concentration camp was, in a sense, restored to his command, for he supervised the collection of clothing among the nearby Bavarian villages, and its distribution to all of us who at that time still wore the clothes we had inherited from other inmates of Camp Auschwitz, who were not as fortunate as we, having been sent to the gas chamber immediately upon their arrival at the railway station. It is apparent that the mere knowledge that a man was either a camp guard or a prisoner tells us almost nothing. Human kindness can be found in all groups, even those which as a whole it would be easy to condemn. The boundaries between groups overlapped, and we must not try to simplify matters by saying that these men were angels and those were devils. 
Certainly it was a considerable achievement for a guard or foreman to be kind to the prisoners in spite of all the camp's influences. And, on the other hand, the baseness of a prisoner who treated his own companions badly was exceptionally contemptible. Obviously the prisoners found the lack of character in such men especially upsetting, while they were profoundly moved by the smallest kindness received from any of the guards. I remember how one day a foreman secretly gave me a piece of bread which I knew he must have saved from his breakfast ration. It was far more than the small piece of bread which moved me to tears at that time. It was the human something which this man also gave to me, the word and look which accompanied the gift. From all this we may learn that there are two races of men in this world, but only these two, the race of the decent man and the race of the indecent man. Both are found everywhere. They penetrate into all groups of society. No group consists entirely of decent or indecent people. In this sense, no group is of pure race, and therefore one occasionally found a decent fellow among the camp guards. Life in a concentration camp tore open the human soul and exposed its depths. Is it surprising that in those depths we again found only human qualities which in their very nature were a mixture of good and evil? The rift dividing good from evil, which goes through all human beings, reaches into the lowest depths and becomes apparent even on the bottom of the abyss, which is laid open by the concentration camp. And now to the last chapter in the psychology of a concentration camp, the psychology of the prisoner who has been released. In describing the experiences of liberation, which naturally must be personal, we shall pick up the threads of that part of our narrative which told of the morning when the white flag was hoisted above the camp gates after days of high tension. This state of inner suspense was followed by total relaxation, but it would be quite wrong to think that we went mad with joy. What then did happen? With tired steps we prisoners dragged ourselves to the camp gates. Timidly we looked around and glanced at each other questioningly. Then we ventured a few steps out of camp. This time no orders were shouted at us, nor was there any need to duck quickly to avoid a blow or kick. Oh, no, this time the guards offered us cigarettes. We hardly recognized them at first. They had hurriedly changed into civilian clothes. We walked slowly along the road leading from the camp. Soon our legs hurt and threatened to buckle, but we limped on. We wanted to see the camp's surroundings for the first time with the eyes of free men. Freedom. We repeated to ourselves, and yet we could not grasp it. We had said this word so often during all the years we dreamed about it that it had lost its meaning. Its reality did not penetrate into our consciousness. We could not grasp the fact that freedom was ours. We came to meadows full of flowers. We saw and realized that they were there, but we had no feelings about them. The first spark of joy came when we saw a rooster with a tail of multicolored feathers, but it remained only a spark. We did not yet belong to this world. In the evening, when we all met again in our hut, one said secretly to the other, Tell me, were you pleased today? And the other replied, feeling ashamed as he did not know that we all felt similarly, Truthfully, no. We had literally lost the ability to feel pleased, and had to relearn it slowly. Psychologically, what was happening to the liberated prisoners could be called depersonalization. 
everything appeared unreal, unlikely, as in a dream. We could not believe it was true. How often in the past years had we been deceived by dreams? We dreamt that the day of liberation had come, that we had been set free, had returned home, greeted our friends, embraced our wives, sat down at the table, and started to tell of all the things we had gone through, even of how we had often seen the day of liberation in our dreams, and then a whistle shrilled in our ears, the signal to get up, and our dreams of freedom came to an end. And now the dream had come true, but could we truly believe in it? The body has fewer inhibitions than the mind. It made good use of the new freedom from the first moment on. It began to eat ravenously, for hours and days, even half the night. It is amazing what quantities one can eat. And when one of the prisoners was invited out by a friendly farmer in the neighborhood, he ate and ate, and then drank coffee, which loosened his tongue, and he then began to talk, often for hours. The pressure which had been on his mind for years was released at last. Hearing him talk, one got the impression that he had to talk, that his desire to speak was irresistible. I have known people who have been under heavy pressure for only a short time, for example through a cross-examination by the Gestapo, to have similar reactions. Many days passed, until not only the tongue was loosened, but something within oneself as well. Then feeling suddenly broke through the strange fetters which had restrained it. One day, a few days after the liberation, I walked through the country past flowering meadows for miles and miles toward the market town near the camp. Larks rose to the sky, and I could hear their joyous song. There was no one to be seen for miles around. There was nothing but the wide earth and sky, and the lark's jubilation, and the freedom of space. I stopped, looked around, and up to the sky, and then I went down on my knees. At that moment there was very little I knew of myself or of the world. I had but one sentence in mind, always the same. I called to the Lord from my narrow prison, and He answered me in the freedom of space. How long I knelt there and repeated this sentence, memory can no longer recall, but I know that on that day, in that hour, my new life started. Step for step I progressed, until I again became a human being. The way that led from the acute mental tension of the last days in camp, from that war of nerves to mental peace, was certainly not free from obstacles. It would be an error to think that a liberated prisoner was not in need of spiritual care any more. We have to consider that a man who has been under such enormous mental pressure for such a long time is naturally in some danger after his liberation, especially since the pressure was released quite suddenly. This danger, in the sense of psychological hygiene, is the psychological counterpart of the bends. Just as the physical health of the caisson worker would be endangered if he left his diver's chamber suddenly, where he is under enormous atmospheric pressure, so the man who has suddenly been liberated from mental pressure can suffer damage to his moral and spiritual health. During this psychological phase, one observed that people with natures of a more primitive kind could not escape the influences of the brutality which had surrounded them in camp life. Now, being free, they thought they could use their freedom licentiously and ruthlessly. The only thing that had changed for them was that they were now the oppressors instead of the oppressed. They became instigators, not objects of willful force and injustice. 
they justified their behavior by their own terrible experiences. This was often revealed in apparently insignificant events. A friend was walking across a field with me toward the camp when suddenly he came to a field of green crops. Automatically I avoided it, but he drew his arm through mine and dragged me through it. I stammered something about not treading down the young crops. He became annoyed, gave me an angry look, and shouted, "'You don't say! And hasn't enough been taken from us? My wife and child have been gassed, not to mention everything else, and you would forbid me to tread on a few stalks of oats?' Only slowly could these men be guided back to the commonplace truth that no one has the right to do wrong, not even if wrong has been done to them. We had to strive to lead them back to this truth, or the consequences would have been much worse than the loss of a few thousand stalks of oats. I can still see the prisoner who rolled up his shirt-sleeves, thrust his right hand under my nose, and shouted, "'May this hand be cut off if I don't stain it with blood on the day when I get home!' I want to emphasize that the man who said these words was not a bad fellow. He had been the best of comrades in camp and afterwards. Apart from the moral deformity resulting from the sudden release of mental pressure, there were two other fundamental experiences which threatened to damage the character of the liberated prisoner. Bitterness and disillusionment when he returned to his former life. Bitterness was caused by a number of things he came up against in his former hometown. When, on his return, a man found that in many places he was met only with a shrug of the shoulders and with hackneyed phrases, he tended to become bitter, and to ask himself why he had gone through all that he had. When he heard the same phrases nearly everywhere, we did not know about it, and we too have suffered. Then he asked himself, have they really nothing better to say to me? The experience of disillusionment is different. Here it was not one's fellow man, whose superficiality and lack of feeling were so disgusting that one finally felt like creeping into a hole and neither hearing nor seeing human beings any more, but fate itself which seemed so cruel. A man who for years had thought he had reached the absolute limit of all possible suffering now found that suffering has no limits, and that he could suffer still more, and still more intensely. When we spoke about attempts to give a man in camp mental courage, we said that he had to be shown something to look forward to in the future. He had to be reminded that life still waited for him, that a human being waited for his return. But after liberation, there were some men who found that no one awaited them. Woe to him who found that the person whose memory alone had given him courage in camp did not exist any more. Woe to him who, when the day of his dreams finally came, found it so different from all he had longed for. Perhaps he boarded a trolley, travelled out to the home which he had seen for years in his mind, and only in his mind, and pressed the bell, just as he has longed to do in thousands of dreams, only to find that the person who should open the door was not there, and would never be there again. We all said to each other in camp, that there could be no earthly happiness which could compensate for all we had suffered. We were not hoping for happiness. It was not that which gave us courage and gave meaning to our suffering, our sacrifices, and our dying. And yet we were not prepared for unhappiness. This disillusionment, which awaited not a small number of prisoners, was an experience which these men have found very hard to get over, and which, for a psychiatrist, 
is also very difficult to help them overcome. But this must not be a discouragement to him. On the contrary, it should provide an added stimulus. But for every one of the liberated prisoners, the day comes when, looking back on his camp experiences, he can no longer understand how he endured it all. As the day of his liberation eventually came, when everything seemed to him like a beautiful dream, so also the day comes when all his camp experiences seem to him nothing but a nightmare. The crowning experience of all for the homecoming man is the wonderful feeling that, after all he has suffered, there is nothing he need fear any more, except his God. Part 2 Logotherapy in a Nutshell This part, which has been revised and updated, first appeared as Basic Concepts of Logotherapy in the 1962 edition of Man's Search for Meaning. Readers of my short autobiographical story usually ask for a fuller and more direct explanation of my therapeutic doctrine. Accordingly, I added a brief section on logotherapy to the original edition of From Death Camp to Existentialism. But that was not enough, and I have been besieged by requests for a more extended treatment. Therefore, in the present edition, I have completely rewritten and considerably expanded my account. The assignment was not easy. To convey to the reader within a short space all the material which required twenty volumes in German is an almost hopeless task. I am reminded of the American doctor who once turned up in my office in Vienna and asked me, Now, doctor, are you a psychoanalyst? Whereupon I replied, Not exactly a psychoanalyst. Let's say a psychotherapist. Then he continued, questioning me, What school do you stand for? I answered, It is my own theory. I call it logotherapy. Can you tell me in one sentence what is meant by logotherapy? He asked. At least, what is the difference between psychoanalysis and logotherapy? Yes, I said. But in the first place, can you tell me in one sentence what you think the essence of psychoanalysis is? This was his answer. During psychoanalysis, the patient must lie down on a couch and tell you things which sometimes are very disagreeable to tell. Whereupon, I immediately retorted with the following improvisation. Now, in logotherapy... The patient may remain sitting erect, but he must hear things which sometimes are very disagreeable to hear. Of course, this was meant facetiously, and not as a capsule version of logotherapy. However, there is something in it, inasmuch as logotherapy, in comparison with psychoanalysis, is a method less retrospective and less introspective. Logotherapy focuses rather on the future, that is to say, on the meanings to be fulfilled by the patient in his future. Logotherapy, indeed, is a meaning-centered psychotherapy. At the same time, logotherapy defocuses all the vicious circle formations and feedback mechanisms which play such a great role in the development of neuroses. Thus, the typical self-centeredness of the neurotic is broken up instead of being continually fostered and reinforced. To be sure, this kind of statement is an oversimplification, yet in logotherapy the patient is actually confronted with and reoriented toward the meaning of his life, and to make him aware of this meaning can contribute much to his ability to overcome his neurosis. Let me explain why I have employed the term logotherapy as the name for my theory. 
Logos is a Greek word which denotes meaning. Logotherapy, or as it has been called by some authors, the third Viennese school of psychotherapy, focuses on the meaning of human existence as well as on man's search for such a meaning. According to logotherapy, this striving to find a meaning in one's life is the primary motivational force in man. That is why I speak of a will to meaning, in contrast to the pleasure principle, or, as we could also term it, the will to pleasure, on which Freudian psychoanalysis is centered, as well as in contrast to the will to power on which Adlerian psychology, using the term striving for superiority, is focused. The Will to Meaning Man's search for meaning is the primary motivation in his life, and not a secondary rationalization of instinctual drives. This meaning is unique and specific, in that it must and can be fulfilled by him alone. Only then does it achieve a significance which will satisfy his own will to meaning. There are some authors who contend that meanings and values are nothing but defense mechanisms, reaction formations, and sublimations. But as for myself, I would not be willing to live merely for the sake of my defense mechanisms, nor would I be ready to die merely for the sake of my reaction formations. Man, however, is able to live and even to die for the sake of his ideals and values. A public opinion poll was conducted a few years ago in France. The results showed that 89% of the people polled admitted that man needs something for the sake of which to live. Moreover, 61% conceded that there was something, or someone, in their own lives for whose sake they were even ready to die. I repeated this poll at my hospital department in Vienna among both the patients and the personnel, and the outcome was practically the same as among the thousands of people screened in France. The difference was only 2%. Another statistical survey of 7,948 students at 48 colleges was conducted by social scientists from Johns Hopkins University. Their preliminary report is part of a two-year study sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health. Asked what they considered very important to them now, 16% of the students checked making a lot of money. 78% said their first goal was finding a purpose and meaning to my life. Of course, there may be some cases in which an individual's concern with values is really a camouflage of hidden inner conflicts. But, if so, they represent the exceptions from the rule rather than the rule itself. In these cases, we have actually to deal with pseudo-values, and as such they have to be unmasked. Unmasking, however, should stop as soon as one is confronted with what is authentic and genuine in man, for example, man's desire for a life that is as meaningful as possible. If it does not stop then, the only thing that the unmasking psychologist really unmasks is his own hidden motive, namely his unconscious need to debase and depreciate what is genuine, what is genuinely human in man. Existential Frustration Man's will to meaning can also be frustrated, in which case logotherapy speaks of existential frustration. The term existential may be used in three ways, to refer to 1. Existence itself, that is, the specifically human mode of being, two, the meaning of existence, and three, 
the striving to find a concrete meaning in personal existence, that is to say, the will to meaning. Existential frustration can also result in neuroses. For this type of neuroses, logotherapy has coined the term nogenic neuroses, in contrast to neuroses in the traditional sense of the word, that is, psychogenic neuroses. Noogenic neuroses have their origin not in the psychological, but rather in the noological, from the Greek nos, meaning mind, dimension of human existence. This is another logotherapeutic term which denotes anything pertaining to the specifically human dimension. Noogenic neuroses Noogenic neuroses do not emerge from conflicts between drives and instincts, but rather from existential problems. Among such problems, the frustration of the will to meaning plays a large role. It is obvious that in noogenic cases the appropriate and adequate therapy is not psychotherapy in general, but rather logotherapy, a therapy, that is, which dares to enter the specifically human dimension. Let me quote the following instance. A high-ranking American diplomat came to my office in Vienna in order to continue psychoanalytic treatment which he had begun five years previously with an analyst in New York. At the outset I asked him why he thought he should be analyzed, why his analysis had been started in the first place. It turned out that the patient was discontented with his career and found it most difficult to comply with American foreign policy. His analyst, however, had told him again and again that he should try to reconcile himself with his father, because the government of the United States, as well as his superiors, were nothing but father images, and, consequently, his dissatisfaction with his job was due to the hatred he unconsciously harbored toward his father. Through an analysis lasting five years, the patient had been prompted more and more to accept his analyst's interpretations until he finally was unable to see the forest of reality for the trees of symbols and images. After a few interviews, it was clear that his will to meaning was frustrated by his vocation, and he actually longed to be engaged in some other kind of work. As there was no reason for not giving up his profession and embarking on a different one, he did so with most gratifying results. He has remained contented in this new occupation for over five years, as he recently reported. I doubt that, in this case, I was dealing with a neurotic condition at all, and that is why I thought that he did not need any psychotherapy, nor even logotherapy, for the simple reason that he was not actually a patient. Not every conflict is necessarily neurotic. Some amount of conflict is normal and healthy. In a similar sense, suffering is not always a pathological phenomenon. Rather than being a symptom of neurosis, suffering may well be a human achievement especially if the suffering grows out of existential frustration. I would strictly deny that one's search for a meaning to his existence, or even his doubt of it, in every case is derived from or results in any disease. Existential frustration is in itself neither pathological nor pathogenic. A man's concern, even his despair, over the worthwhileness of life is an existential distress, but by no means a mental disease. It may well be that interpreting the first in terms of the latter motivates a doctor to bury his patient's existential despair under a heap of tranquilizing drugs. It is his task, rather, to pilot the patient through his existential crisis of growth and development. 
Logotherapy regards its assignment as that of assisting the patient to find meaning in his life. Inasmuch as logotherapy makes him aware of the hidden logos of his existence, it is an analytical process. To this extent, logotherapy resembles psychoanalysis. However, in logotherapy's attempt to make something conscious again, it does not restrict its activity to instinctual facts within the individual's unconscious, but also cares for existential realities, such as the potential meaning of his existence to be fulfilled, as well as his will to meaning. Any analysis, however, even when it refrains from including the noological dimension in its therapeutic process, tries to make the patient aware of what he actually longs for in the depth of his being. Logotherapy deviates from psychoanalysis insofar as it considers man a being whose main concern consists in fulfilling a meaning, rather than in the mere gratification and satisfaction of drives and instincts, or in merely reconciling the conflicting claims of id, ego, and superego, or in the mere adaptation and adjustment to society and environment. No Dynamics To be sure, man's search for meaning may arouse inner tension rather than inner equilibrium. However, precisely such tension is an indispensable prerequisite of mental health. There is nothing in the world, I venture to say, that would so effectively help one to survive even the worst conditions as the knowledge that there is a meaning in one's life. There is much wisdom in the words of Nietzsche, he who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. I can see in these words a motto which holds true for any psychotherapy. In the Nazi concentration camps, one could have witnessed that those who knew that there was a task waiting for them to fulfill were most apt to survive. The same conclusion has since been reached by other authors of books on concentration camps, and also by psychiatric investigations into Japanese, North Korean, and North Vietnamese prisoner-of-war camps. As for myself, when I was taken to the concentration camp of Auschwitz, a manuscript of mine ready for publication was confiscated. Footnote. It was the first version of my first book, the English translation of which was published by Alfred A. Knopf, New York, in 1955, under the title The Doctor and the Soul, An Introduction to Logotherapy. Certainly my deep desire to write this manuscript anew helped me to survive the rigors of the camps I was in. For instance, when in a camp in Bavaria I fell ill with typhus fever, I jotted down on little scraps of paper many notes intended to enable me to rewrite the manuscript should I live to the day of liberation. I am sure that this reconstruction of my lost manuscript in the dark barracks of a Bavarian concentration camp assisted me in overcoming the danger of cardiovascular collapse. Thus it can be seen that mental health is based on a certain degree of tension, the tension between what one has already achieved and what one still ought to accomplish, or the gap between what one is and what one should become. Such a tension is inherent in the human being, and therefore is indispensable to mental well-being. We should not, then, be hesitant about challenging man with a potential meaning for him to fulfill. It is only thus that we evoke his will to meaning from its state of latency. I consider it a dangerous misconception of mental hygiene to assume that what man needs in the first place is equilibrium, or, as it is called in biology, homeostasis, that is, a tensionless state. 
What man actually needs is not a tensionless state, but rather the striving and struggling for a worthwhile goal, a freely chosen task. What he needs is not the discharge of tension at any cost, but the call of a potential meaning waiting to be fulfilled by him. What man needs is not homeostasis, but what I call no dynamics. That is, the existential dynamics in a polar field of tension, where one pole is represented by a meaning that is to be fulfilled, and the other pole by the man who has to fulfill it. And one should not think that this holds true only for normal conditions. In neurotic individuals it is even more valid. If architects want to strengthen a decrepit arch, they increase the load which is laid upon it, for thereby the parts are joined more firmly together. So if therapists wish to foster their patients' mental health, they should not be afraid to create a sound amount of tension through a reorientation toward the meaning of one's life. Having shown the beneficial impact of meaning orientation, I turn to the detrimental influence of that feeling of which so many patients complain today, namely the feeling of the total and ultimate meaninglessness of their lives. They lack the awareness of a meaning worth living for. They are haunted by the experience of their inner emptiness, a void within themselves. They are caught in that situation which I have called the existential vacuum. THE EXISTENTIAL VACUUM The existential vacuum is a widespread phenomenon of the twentieth century. This is understandable. It may be due to a twofold loss which man has had to undergo since he became a truly human being. At the beginning of human history, man lost some of the basic animal instincts in which an animal's behavior is embedded and by which it is secured. Such security, like paradise, is closed to man forever man has to make choices. In addition to this, however, man has suffered another loss in his more recent development, inasmuch as the traditions which buttressed his behavior are now rapidly diminishing. No instinct tells him what he has to do, and no tradition tells him what he ought to do. Sometimes he does not even know what he wishes to do. Instead, he either wishes to do what other people do, conformism, or he does what other people wish him to do, totalitarianism. A statistical survey recently revealed that among my European students, 25% showed a more or less marked degree of existential vacuum. Among my American students it was not 25, but 60%. The existential vacuum manifests itself mainly in a state of boredom. Now we can understand Schopenhauer when he said that mankind was apparently doomed to vacillate eternally between the two extremes of distress and boredom. In actual fact, boredom is now causing and certainly bringing to psychiatrists more problems to solve than distress. And these problems are growing increasingly crucial, for progressive automation will probably lead to an enormous increase in the leisure hours available to the average worker. The pity of it is that many of these will not know what to do with all their newly acquired free time. Let us consider, for instance, Sunday neurosis that kind of depression which afflicts people who become aware of the lack of content in their lives when the rush of the busy week is over and the void within themselves becomes manifest. Not a few cases of suicide can be traced back to this existential vacuum. Such widespread phenomena as depression, aggression, and addiction are not understandable unless we recognize the existential vacuum underlying them. 
This is also true of the crises of pensioners and aging people. Moreover, there are various masks and guises under which the existential vacuum appears. Sometimes the frustrated will to meaning is vicariously compensated for by a will to power, including the most primitive form of the will to power, the will to money. In other cases, the place of frustrated will to meaning is taken by the will to pleasure. That is why existential frustration often eventuates in sexual compensation. We can observe in such cases that the sexual libido becomes rampant in the existential vacuum. An analogous event occurs in neurotic cases. There are certain types of feedback mechanisms and vicious circle formations which I will touch upon later. One can observe again and again, however, that this symptomatology has invaded an existential vacuum wherein it then continues to flourish. In such patients, what we have to deal with is not a noogenic neurosis. However, we will never succeed in having the patient overcome his condition if we have not supplemented the psychotherapeutic treatment with logotherapy. For by filling the existential vacuum, the patient will be prevented from suffering further relapses. Therefore, logotherapy is indicated not only in noogenic cases, as pointed out above, but also in psychogenic cases, and sometimes even the somatogenic pseudoneuroses. Viewed in this light, a statement once made by Magda B. Arnold is justified. Every therapy must in some way, no matter how restricted, also be logotherapy. Magda B. Arnold and John A. Gasson, The Human Person, Ronald Press, New York, 1954, page 618. Let us now consider what we can do if a patient asks what the meaning of his life is. The Meaning of Life I doubt whether a doctor can answer this question in general terms, for the meaning of life differs from man to man, from day to day, and from hour to hour. What matters, therefore, is not the meaning of life in general, but rather the specific meaning of a person's life at a given moment. To put the question in general terms would be comparable to the question posed to a chess champion. Tell me, master, what is the best move in the world? There simply is no such thing as the best, or even a good move, apart from a particular situation in a game, and the particular personality of one's opponent. The same holds for human existence. One should not search for an abstract meaning of life. Everyone has his own specific vocation or mission in life to carry out a concrete assignment which demands fulfillment. Therein he cannot be replaced, nor can his life be repeated. Thus everyone's task is as unique as his specific opportunity to implement it. As each situation in life represents a challenge to man and presents a problem for him to solve, the question of the meaning of life may actually be reversed. Ultimately, man should not ask what the meaning of his life is, but rather he must recognize that it is he who is asked. In a word, each man is questioned by life, and he can only answer to life by answering for his own life. To life he can only respond by being responsible. Thus, logotherapy sees in responsibleness the very essence of human existence. The Essence of Existence This emphasis on responsibleness is reflected in the categorical imperative of logotherapy, which is, live as if you were living already for the second time, 
and as if you had acted the first time as wrongly as you are about to act now. It seems to me that there is nothing which would stimulate a man's sense of responsibleness more than this maxim, which invites him to imagine first that the present is past, and second that the past may yet be changed and amended. Such a precept confronts him with life's finiteness, as well as the finality of what he makes out of both his life and himself. Logotherapy tries to make the patient fully aware of his own responsibleness. Therefore, it must leave to him the option for what, to what, or to whom he understands himself to be responsible. That is why a logotherapist is the least tempted of all psychotherapists to impose value judgments on his patients, for he will never permit the patient to pass to the doctor the responsibility of judging. It is, therefore, up to the patient to decide whether he should interpret his life task as being responsible to society or to his own conscience. There are people, however, who do not interpret their own lives merely in terms of a task assigned to them, but also in terms of the taskmaster who has assigned it to them. Logotherapy is neither teaching nor preaching. It is as far removed from logical reasoning as it is from moral exhortation. To put it figuratively, the role played by a logotherapist is that of an eye specialist rather than that of a painter. A painter tries to convey to us a picture of the world as he sees it. An ophthalmologist tries to enable us to see the world as it really is. The logotherapist's role consists of widening and broadening the visual field of the patient so that the whole spectrum of potential meaning becomes conscious and visible to him. By declaring that man is responsible and must actualize the potential meaning of his life, I wish to stress that the true meaning of life is to be discovered in the world rather than within man or his own psyche, as though it were a closed system. I have termed this constitutive characteristic the self-transcendence of human existence. It denotes the fact that being human always points and is directed to something or someone other than oneself, be it a meaning to fulfill or another human being to encounter. The more one forgets himself, by giving himself to a cause to serve or another person to love, the more human he is and the more he actualizes himself. What is called self-actualization is not an attainable aim at all, for the simple reason that the more one would strive for it, the more he would miss it. In other words, self-actualization is possible only as a side effect of self-transcendence. Thus far we have shown that the meaning of life always changes, but that it never ceases to be. According to logotherapy, we can discover this meaning in life in three different ways. One, by creating a work or doing a deed. Two, by experiencing something or encountering someone. And three, by the attitude we take toward unavoidable suffering. The first, the way of achievement or accomplishment, is quite obvious. The second and third need further elaboration. The second way of finding a meaning in life is by experiencing something, such as goodness, truth, and beauty, by experiencing nature and culture, or, last but not least, by experiencing another human being in his very uniqueness, by loving him. The Meaning of Love Love is the only way to grasp another human being in the innermost core of his personality. 
No one can become fully aware of the very essence of another human being unless he loves him. By his love he is enabled to see the essential traits and features in the beloved person, and even more he sees that which is potential in him, which is not yet actualized but yet ought to be actualized. Furthermore, by his love, the loving person enables the beloved person to actualize these potentialities. By making him aware of what he can be and of what he should become, he makes these potentialities come true. In logotherapy, love is not interpreted as a mere epiphenomenon, a phenomenon that occurs as the result of a primary phenomenon, of sexual drives and instincts in the sense of a so-called sublimation, Love is as primary a phenomenon as sex. Normally, sex is a mode of expression for love. Sex is justified, even sanctified, as soon as, but only as long as, it is a vehicle of love. Thus, love is not understood as a mere side effect of sex. Rather, sex is a way of expressing the experience of that ultimate togetherness which is called love. The third way of finding a meaning in life is by suffering. THE MEANING OF SUFFERING We must never forget that we may also find meaning in life even when confronted with a hopeless situation, when facing a fate that cannot be changed. For what then matters is to bear witness to the uniquely human potential at its best, which is to transform a personal tragedy into a triumph, to turn one's predicament into a human achievement. When we are no longer able to change a situation, just think of an incurable disease such as inoperable cancer, we are challenged to change ourselves. Let me cite a clear-cut example. Once an elderly general practitioner consulted me because of his severe depression. He could not overcome the loss of his wife, who had died two years before, and whom he had loved above all else. Now, how could I help him? What should I tell him? Well, I refrained from telling him anything, but instead confronted him with the question, What would have happened, doctor, if you had died first, and your wife would have had to survive you? Oh, he said, for her this would have been terrible. How she would have suffered! Whereupon I replied, You see, doctor, such a suffering has been spared her, and it was you who have spared her this suffering. To be sure, at the price that now you have to survive and mourn her, he said no word, but shook my hand and calmly left my office. In some way, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds a meaning, such as the meaning of a sacrifice. Of course, this was no therapy in the proper sense, since, first, his despair was no disease, and, second, I could not change his fate, I could not revive his wife. But in that moment, I did succeed in changing his attitude toward his unalterable fate, inasmuch as from that time on he could at least see a meaning in his suffering. It is one of the basic tenets of logotherapy that man's main concern is not to gain pleasure or to avoid pain, but rather to see a meaning in his life. That is why man is even ready to suffer, on the condition to be sure that his suffering has a meaning. But let me make it perfectly clear that in no way is suffering necessary to find meaning. I only insist that meaning is possible even in spite of suffering, provided certainly that the suffering is unavoidable. If it were avoidable, however, the meaningful thing to do would be to remove its cause, be it psychological, biological, or political. To suffer unnecessarily 
is masochistic rather than heroic. This book is continued on Disc 4. Man's Search for Meaning by Victor E. Frankel continued. Disc 4. But let me make it perfectly clear that in no way is suffering necessary to find meaning. I only insist that meaning is possible even in spite of suffering, provided certainly that the suffering is unavoidable. If it were avoidable, however, the meaningful thing to do would be to remove its cause, be it psychological, biological, or political. To suffer unnecessarily is masochistic rather than heroic. Edith weisskopf Jolson, before her death professor of psychology at the University of Georgia, contended in her article on logotherapy that our current mental hygiene philosophy stresses the idea that people ought to be happy, that unhappiness is a symptom of maladjustment. Such a value system might be responsible for the fact that the burden of unavoidable unhappiness is increased by unhappiness about being unhappy. Some comments on a Viennese school of psychiatry, the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology, 51, 1955, pages 701 to 3. And in another paper she expressed the hope that logotherapy may help counteract certain unhealthy trends in the present-day culture of the United States, where the incurable sufferer is given very little opportunity to be proud of his suffering, and to consider it ennobling rather than degrading, so that he is not only unhappy, but also ashamed of being unhappy. Logotherapy and Existential Analysis, Acta Psychotherapeutica, 6, 1958, pages 193 to 204. There are situations in which one is cut off from the opportunity to do one's work or to enjoy one's life. But what never can be ruled out is the unavoidability of suffering. In accepting this challenge to suffer bravely, life has a meaning up to the last moment, and it retains this meaning literally to the end. In other words, life's meaning is an unconditional one, for it even includes the potential meaning of unavoidable suffering. Let me recall that which was perhaps the deepest experience I had in the concentration camp. The odds of surviving the camp were no more than one in twenty-eight, as can easily be verified by exact statistics. It did not even seem possible, let alone probable, that the manuscript of my first book, which I had hidden in my coat when I arrived at Auschwitz, would ever be rescued. Thus I had to undergo and to overcome the loss of my mental child. And now it seemed as if nothing and no one would survive me, neither a physical nor a mental child of my own. So I found myself confronted with the question whether under such circumstances my life was ultimately void of any meaning. Not yet did I notice that an answer to this question, with which I was wrestling so passionately, was already in store for me and that soon thereafter this answer would be given to me. This was the case when I had to surrender my clothes, and in turn inherited the worn-out rags of an inmate who had already been sent to the gas chamber immediately after his arrival at the Auschwitz railway station. Instead of the many pages of my manuscript, I found in a pocket of the newly acquired coat one single page torn out of a Hebrew prayer book, containing the most important Jewish prayer, Shema Yisrael. How should I have interpreted such a coincidence other than as a challenge to live my thoughts instead of merely putting them on paper? A bit later, I remember, it seemed to me that I would die in the near future, 
In this critical situation, however, my concern was different from that of most of my comrades. Their question was, will we survive the camp? For if not, all this suffering has no meaning. The question which beset me was, has all this suffering, this dying around us, a meaning? For if not, then ultimately there is no meaning to survival. For a life whose meaning depends upon such a happenstance, as whether one escapes or not, ultimately would not be worth living at all. Metaclinical Problems More and more a psychiatrist is approached today by patients who confront him with human problems rather than neurotic symptoms. Some of the people who nowadays call on a psychiatrist would have seen a pastor, priest, or rabbi in former days. Now they often refuse to be handed over to a clergyman and instead confront the doctor with questions such as, What is the meaning of my life? A Logodrama I should like to cite the following instance. Once, the mother of a boy who had died at the age of eleven years was admitted to my hospital department after a suicide attempt. Dr. Kurt Kotjurek invited her to join a therapeutic group, and it happened that I stepped into the room where he was conducting a psychodrama. She was telling her story. At the death of her boy she was left alone with another, older son, who was crippled, suffering from the effects of infantile paralysis. The poor boy had to be moved around in a wheelchair. His mother, however, rebelled against her fate. But when she tried to commit suicide together with him, it was the crippled son who prevented her from doing so. He liked living. For him, life had remained meaningful. Why was it not so for his mother? How could her life still have a meaning, and how could we help her to become aware of it? Improvising, I participated in the discussion and questioned another woman in the group. I asked her how old she was, and she answered, Thirty. I replied, No, you are not thirty, but instead eighty and lying on your deathbed. And now you are looking back on your life, a life which was childless, but full of financial success and social prestige. And then I invited her to imagine what she would feel in this situation. What will you think of it? What will you say to yourself? Let me quote what she actually said from a tape which was recorded during that session. Oh, I married a millionaire. I had an easy life, full of wealth, and I lived it up. I flirted with men. I teased them. But now I am eighty. I have no children of my own. Looking back as an old woman, I cannot see what all that was for. Actually, I must say, my life was a failure. I then invited the mother of the handicapped son to imagine herself similarly looking back over her life. Let us listen to what she had to say, as recorded on the tape. I wish to have children, and this wish has been granted to me. One boy died. The other, however, the crippled one, would have been sent to an institution if I had not taken over his care. Though he is crippled and helpless, he is, after all, my boy, and so I have made a fuller life possible for him. I have made a better human being out of my son. At this moment there was an outburst of tears, and, crying, she continued, As for myself, I can look back peacefully on my life, for I can say my life was full of meaning, and I have tried hard to fulfill it. I have done my best. I have done the best for my son. My life was no failure. 
Viewing her life as if from her deathbed, she had suddenly been able to see a meaning in it, a meaning which even included all of her sufferings. By the same token, however, it had become clear as well that a life of short duration, like that, for example, of her dead boy, could be so rich in joy and love that it could contain more meaning than a life lasting eighty years. After a while I proceeded to another question, this time addressing myself to the whole group. The question was whether an ape, which was being used to develop poliomyelitis serum, and for this reason punctured again and again, would ever be able to grasp the meaning of its suffering. Unanimously the group replied that of course it would not. With its limited intelligence it could not enter into the world of man, that is, the only world in which the meaning of its suffering would be understandable. Then I pushed forward with the following question. And what about man? Are you sure that the human world is a terminal point in the evolution of the cosmos? Is it not conceivable that there is still another dimension, a world beyond man's world, a world in which the question of an ultimate meaning of human suffering would find an answer? The Super-Meaning This ultimate meaning necessarily exceeds and surpasses the finite intellectual capacities of man. In logotherapy we speak in this context of a super-meaning. What is demanded of man is not, as some existential philosophers teach, to endure the meaninglessness of life, but rather to bear his incapacity to grasp its unconditional meaningfulness in rational terms. Logos is deeper than logic. A psychiatrist who goes beyond the concept of the super-meaning will sooner or later be embarrassed by his patients, just as I was when my daughter at about six years of age asked me the question, Why do we speak of the good Lord? Whereupon I said, Some weeks ago you were suffering from measles, and then the good Lord sent you full recovery. However, the little girl was not content. She retorted, Well, but please, Daddy, do not forget, in the first place he had sent me the measles. However, when a patient stands on the firm ground of religious belief, there can be no objection to making use of the therapeutic effect of his religious convictions, and thereby drawing upon his spiritual resources. In order to do so, the psychiatrist may put himself in the place of the patient. That is exactly what I did once, for instance, when a rabbi from Eastern Europe turned to me and told me his story. He had lost his first wife and their six children in the concentration camp of Auschwitz, where they were gassed, and now it turned out that his second wife was sterile. I observed that procreation is not the only meaning of life, for then life in itself would become meaningless, and something which in itself is meaningless cannot be rendered meaningful merely by its perpetuation. However, the rabbi evaluated his plight as an Orthodox Jew in terms of despair, that there was no son of his own who would ever say Kaddish, a prayer for the dead, for him after his death. But I would not give up. I made a last attempt to help him by inquiring whether he did not hope to see his children again in heaven. However, my question was followed by an outburst of tears, and now the true reason for his despair came to the fore. He explained that his children, since they died as innocent martyrs, the Kiddush Basbem, that is, for the sanctification of God's name, were thus found worthy of the highest place in heaven. But as for himself, he could not expect, as an old sinful man, to be assigned the same place. I did not give up, but retorted, 
Is it not conceivable, Rabbi, that precisely this was the meaning of your surviving your children, that you may be purified through these years of suffering, so that finally you too, though not innocent like your children, may become worthy of joining them in heaven? Is it not written in the Psalms that God preserves all your tears? Thou hast kept count of my tossings, put thou my tears in thy bottle, are they not in thy book? Psalm 56, 8. So perhaps none of your sufferings were in vain. For the first time in many years he found relief from his suffering through the new point of view which I was able to open up to him. Life's Transitoriness Those things which seem to take meaning away from human life include not only suffering but dying as well. I never tire of saying that the only really transitory aspects of life are the potentialities, but as soon as they are actualized, they are rendered realities at that very moment. They are saved and delivered into the past, wherein they are rescued and preserved from transitoriness. For in the past, nothing is irretrievably lost, but everything irrevocably stored. Thus, the transitoriness of our existence in no way makes it meaningless, but it does constitute our responsibleness for everything hinges upon our realizing the essentially transitory possibilities. Man constantly makes his choice concerning the mass of present potentialities, which of these will be condemned to non-being and which will be actualized, which choice will be made an actuality once and forever, an immortal footprint in the sands of time. At any moment man must decide, for better or for worse, what will be the monument of his existence. Usually, to be sure, man considers only the stubble field of transitoriness, and overlooks the full granaries of the past, wherein he had salvaged once and for all his deeds, his joys, and also his sufferings. Nothing can be undone, and nothing can be done away with. I should say, having been, is the surest kind of being. Logotherapy, keeping in mind the essential transitoriness of human existence, is not pessimistic, but rather activistic. To express this point figuratively, we might say, the pessimist resembles a man who observes with fear and sadness that his wall calendar, from which he daily tears a sheet, grows thinner with each passing day. On the other hand, the person who attacks the problems of life actively is like a man who removes each successive leaf from his calendar and files it neatly and carefully away with its predecessors, after first having jotted down a few diary notes on the back. He can reflect with pride and joy on all the richness set down in these notes, on all the life he has already lived to the fullest. What will it matter to him if he notices that he is growing old? Has he any reason to envy the young people whom he sees, or wax nostalgic over his own lost youth? What reasons has he to envy a young person? For the possibilities that a young person has, the future which is in store for him. No, thank you, he will think. Instead of possibilities, I have realities in my past, not only the reality of work done and of love loved, but of sufferings bravely suffered. These sufferings are even the things of which I am most proud, though these are things which cannot inspire envy. Logotherapy as a Technique A realistic fear, like the fear of death, cannot be tranquilized away by its psychodynamic interpretation. On the other hand, a neurotic fear such as agoraphobia cannot be cured by philosophical understanding. However, logotherapy has developed a special technique to handle such cases too. 
To understand what is going on whenever this technique is used, we take as a starting point a condition which is frequently observed in neurotic individuals, namely anticipatory anxiety. It is characteristic of this fear that it produces precisely that of which the patient is afraid. An individual, for example, who is afraid of blushing when he enters a large room and faces many people, will actually be more prone to blush under these circumstances. In this context, one might amend the saying, the wish is father to the thought, to the fear is mother of the event. Ironically enough, in the same way that fear brings to pass what one is afraid of, likewise a forced intention makes impossible what one forcibly wishes. This excessive intention, or hyperintention, as I call it, can be observed particularly in cases of sexual neurosis. The more a man tries to demonstrate his sexual potency or a woman her ability to experience orgasm, the less they are able to succeed. Pleasure is, and must remain, a side effect or by-product, and is destroyed and spoiled to the degree to which it is made a goal in itself. In addition to excessive intention, as described above, excessive attention, or hyper-reflection, as it is called in logotherapy, may also be pathogenic, that is, lead to sickness. The following clinical report will indicate what I mean. A young woman came to me complaining of being frigid. The case history showed that in her childhood she had been sexually abused by her father. However, it had not been this traumatic experience in itself which had eventuated her sexual neurosis, as could easily be evidenced. For it turned out that, through reading popular psychoanalytic literature, the patient had lived constantly with a fearful expectation of the toll which her traumatic experience would some day take. This anticipatory anxiety resulted both in excessive intention to confirm her femininity and excessive attention centered upon herself rather than upon her partner. This was enough to incapacitate the patient for the peak experience of sexual pleasure, since the orgasm was made an object of intention and an object of attention as well, instead of remaining an unintended effect of unreflected dedication and surrender to the partner. After undergoing short-term logotherapy, the patient's excessive attention and intention of her ability to experience orgasm had been de-reflected to introduce another logotherapeutic term. When her attention was refocused toward the proper object, that is, the partner, orgasm established itself spontaneously. Footnote. In order to treat cases of sexual impotence, a specific logotherapeutic technique has been developed based on the theory of hyperintention and hyperreflection as sketched above. Victor E. Frankel, The Pleasure Principle and Sexual Neurosis, The International Journal of Sexology, Volume 5, Number 3, 1952, pages 128 to 30. Of course, this cannot be dealt with in this brief presentation of the principles of logotherapy. Logotherapy bases its technique, called paradoxical intention, on the twofold fact that fear brings about that which one is afraid of, and that hyperintention makes impossible what one wishes. In German, I described paradoxical intention as early as 1939. Victor E. Frankel's Medikamentösen Unterstützung der Psychotherapie bei Neurosen. Schweizer Archive for Neurology and Psychiatry, Volume 43, pages 26 to 31. In this approach, the phobic patient is invited to intend, even if only for a moment, precisely that which he fears. Let me recall a case. A young physician consulted me because of his fear of perspiring. 
Whenever he expected an outbreak of perspiration, this anticipatory anxiety was enough to precipitate excessive sweating. In order to cut this circle formation, I advised the patient, in the event that sweating should recur, to resolve deliberately to show people how much he could sweat. A week later he returned to report that, whenever he met anyone who triggered his anticipatory anxiety, he said to himself, I only sweated out of a quart before, but now I'm going to pour at least ten quarts. The result was that, after suffering from his phobia for four years, he was able, after a single session, to free himself permanently of it within one week. The reader will note that this procedure consists of a reversal of the patient's attitude, inasmuch as his fear is replaced by a paradoxical wish. By this treatment, the wind is taken out of the sails of the anxiety. Such a procedure, however, must make use of the specifically human capacity for self-detachment inherent in a sense of humor. This basic capacity to detach one from oneself is actualized whenever the logotherapeutic technique called paradoxical intention is applied. At the same time, the patient is enabled to put himself at a distance from his own neurosis. A statement consistent with this is found in Gordon W. Allport's book, The Individual and His Religion. The neurotic who learns to laugh at himself may be on the way to self-management, perhaps to cure. New York, The Macmillan Company, 1956, page 92. Paradoxical intention is the empirical validation and clinical application of Allport's statement. A few more case reports may serve to clarify this method further. The following patient was a bookkeeper who had been treated by many doctors and in several clinics without any therapeutic success. When he was admitted to my hospital department, he was in extreme despair, confessing that he was close to suicide. For some years he had suffered from a writer's cramp, which had recently become so severe that he was in danger of losing his job. Therefore, only immediate short-term therapy could alleviate the situation. In starting treatment, Dr. Eva Kosdera recommended to the patient that he do just the opposite of what he usually had done, namely, instead of trying to write as neatly and legibly as possible, to write with the worst possible scrawl. He was advised to say to himself, Now I will show people what a good scribbler I am. And at the moment in which he deliberately tried to scribble, he was unable to do so. I tried to scrawl, but simply could not do it, he said the next day. Within forty-eight hours the patient was in this way freed from his writer's cramp, and remained free for the observation period after he had been treated. He is a happy man again, and fully able to work. A similar case, dealing, however, with speaking rather than writing, was related to me by a colleague in the laryngological department of the Vienna Polyclinic Hospital. It was the most severe case of stuttering he had come across in his many years of practice. Never in his life, as far as the stutterer could remember, had he been free from his speech trouble, even for a moment, except once. This happened when he was twelve years old, and had hooked a ride on a streetcar. When caught by the conductor, he thought that the only way to escape would be to elicit his sympathy, and so he tried to demonstrate that he was just a poor, stuttering boy. At that moment, when he tried to stutter, he was unable to do it. Without meaning to, he had practiced paradoxical intention, though not for therapeutic purposes. However, this presentation should not leave the impression that paradoxical intention is effective only in monosymptomatic cases. By means of this logotherapeutic technique, my staff at the Vienna Polyclinic Hospital 
has succeeded in bringing relief even in obsessive-compulsive neuroses of a most severe degree and duration. I refer, for instance, to a woman 65 years of age who had suffered for 60 years from a washing compulsion. Dr. Eva Kosdera started logotherapeutic treatment by means of paradoxical intention, and two months later the patient was able to lead a normal life. Before admission to the neurological department of the Vienna Polyclinic Hospital, she had confessed, Life was hell for me. Handicapped by her compulsion and bacteriophobic obsession, she finally remained in bed all day, unable to do any housework. It would not be accurate to say that she is now completely free of symptoms, for an obsession may come to her mind. However, she is able to joke about it, as she says, in short, to apply paradoxical intention. Paradoxical intention can also be applied in cases of sleep disturbance. The fear of sleeplessness results in a hyperintention to fall asleep, which in turn incapacitates the patient to do so. Footnote. The fear of sleeplessness is, in the majority of cases, due to the patient's ignorance of the fact that the organism provides itself by itself with the minimum amount of sleep really needed. To overcome this particular fear, I usually advise the patient not to try to sleep, but rather to try to do just the opposite, that is, to stay awake as long as possible. In other words, the hyperintention to fall asleep, arising from the anticipatory anxiety of not being able to do so, must be replaced by the paradoxical intention not to fall asleep, which soon will be followed by sleep. Paradoxical intention is no panacea, yet it lends itself as a useful tool in treating obsessive-compulsive and phobic conditions, especially in cases with underlying anticipatory anxiety. Moreover, it is a short-term therapeutic device. However, one should not conclude that such a short-term therapy necessarily results in only temporary therapeutic effects. One of the more common illusions of Freudian orthodoxy, to quote the late Emile A. Gutteil, is that the durability of results corresponds to the length of therapy. American Journal of Psychotherapy, 10, 1956, page 134. In my files there is, for instance, the case report of a patient to whom paradoxical intention was administered more than twenty years ago. The therapeutic effect proved to be, nevertheless, a permanent one. One of the most remarkable facts is that paradoxical intention is effective regardless of the etiological basis of the case concerned. This confirms a statement once made by Edith weisskopf Jolson. Although traditional psychotherapy has insisted that therapeutic practices have to be based on findings on etiology, it is possible that certain factors might cause neuroses during early childhood and that entirely different factors might relieve neuroses during adulthood. Some comments on a Viennese school of psychiatry, the Journal of Abnormal and Social Psychology, 51, 1955, pages 701 to 3. As for the actual causation of neuroses, apart from constitutional elements, whether somatic or psychic in nature, such feedback mechanisms as anticipatory anxiety seem to be a major pathogenic factor. A given symptom is responded to by a phobia. The phobia triggers the symptom, and the symptom, in turn, reinforces the phobia. A similar chain of events, however, can be observed in obsessive-compulsive cases in which the patient fights the ideas which haunt him. Footnote. This is often motivated by the patient's fear that his obsessions indicate an imminent or even actual psychosis. 
the patient is not aware of the empirical fact that an obsessive-compulsive neurosis is immunizing him against a formal psychosis rather than endangering him in this direction. Thereby, however, he increases their power to disturb him, since pressure precipitates counter-pressure. Again, the symptom is reinforced. On the other hand, as soon as the patient stops fighting his obsessions and instead tries to ridicule them by dealing with them in an ironical way, by applying paradoxical intention, the vicious circle is cut. The symptom diminishes and finally atrophies. In the fortunate case where there is no existential vacuum which invites and elicits the symptom, the patient will not only succeed in ridiculing his neurotic fear, but finally will succeed in completely ignoring it. As we see, anticipatory anxiety has to be counteracted by paradoxical intention. Hyperintention as well as hyperreflection have to be counteracted by dereflection. Dereflection, however, ultimately is not possible except by the patient's orientation toward his specific vocation and mission in life. Footnote. This conviction is supported by Allport, who once said, As the focus of striving shifts from the conflict to selfless goals, the life as a whole becomes sounder, even though the neurosis may never completely disappear. Opposite page 95. It is not the neurotic's self-concern, whether pity or contempt, which breaks the circle formation. The cue to cure is self-transcendence. The Collective Neurosis Every age has its own collective neurosis, and every age needs its own psychotherapy to cope with it. The existential vacuum, which is the mass neurosis of the present time, can be described as a private and personal form of nihilism. For nihilism can be defined as the contention that being has no meaning. As for psychotherapy, however, it will never be able to cope with this state of affairs on a mass scale if it does not keep itself free from the impact and influence of the contemporary trends of a nihilistic philosophy. Otherwise it represents a symptom of the mass neurosis rather than its possible cure. Psychotherapy would not only reflect a nihilistic philosophy, but also, even though unwillingly and unwittingly, transmit to the patient what is actually a caricature rather than a true picture of man. First of all, there is a danger inherent in the teaching of man's nothing-butness, the theory that man is nothing but the result of biological, psychological and sociological conditions, or the product of heredity and environment. Such a view of man makes a neurotic believe what he is prone to believe anyway, namely that he is the pawn and victim of outer influences or inner circumstances. This neurotic fatalism is fostered and strengthened by a psychotherapy which denies that man is free. To be sure, a human being is a finite thing, and his freedom is restricted. It is not freedom from conditions, but it is freedom to take a stand toward the conditions. As I once put it, as a professor in two fields, neurology and psychiatry, I am fully aware of the extent to which man is subject to biological, psychological, and sociological conditions. But in addition to being a professor in two fields, I am a survivor of four camps, concentration camps, that is, and as such I also bear witness to the unexpected extent to which man is capable of defying and braving even the worst conditions conceivable. From Value Dimensions in Teaching, a color television film produced by Hollywood Animators, Inc., for the California Junior College Association.
Critique of Pan-Determinism Psychoanalysis has often been blamed for its so-called pansexualism. I, for one, doubt whether this reproach has ever been legitimate. However, there is something which seems to me to be an even more erroneous and dangerous assumption, namely that which I call pan-determinism. By that I mean the view of man which disregards his capacity to take a stand toward any conditions whatsoever. Man is not fully conditioned and determined, but rather determines himself whether he gives in to conditions or stands up to them. In other words, man is ultimately self-determining. Man does not simply exist, but always decides what his existence will be, what he will become in the next moment. By the same token, every human being has the freedom to change at any instant. Therefore, we can predict his future only within the large framework of a statistical survey referring to a whole group. The individual personality, however, remains essentially unpredictable. The basis for any predictions would be represented by biological, psychological, or sociological conditions. Yet one of the main features of human existence is the capacity to rise above such conditions, to grow beyond them. Man is capable of changing the world for the better, if possible, and of changing himself for the better, if necessary. Let me cite the case of Dr. J. He was the only man I ever encountered in my whole life whom I would dare to call a Mephistophelian being, a satanic figure. At that time he was generally called the mass murderer of Steinhoff, the large mental hospital in Vienna. When the Nazis started their euthanasia program, he held all the strings in his hands, and was so fanatic in the job assigned to him that he tried not to let one single psychotic individual escape the gas chamber. After the war, when I came back to Vienna, I asked what had happened to Dr. J. He had been imprisoned by the Russians in one of the isolation cells of Steinhoff, they told me. The next day, however, the door of his cell stood open and Dr. J. was never seen again. Later I was convinced that, like others, he had, with the help of his comrades, made his way to South America. More recently, however, I was consulted by a former Austrian diplomat who had been imprisoned behind the Iron Curtain for many years, first in Siberia, and then in the famous Lubyanka prison in Moscow. While I was examining him neurologically, he suddenly asked me whether I happened to know Dr. J. After my affirmative reply, he continued, I made his acquaintance in Lubyanka. There he died, at about the age of forty, from cancer of the urinary bladder. Before he died, however, he showed himself to be the best comrade you can imagine. He gave consolation to everybody. He lived up to the highest conceivable moral standard. He was the best friend I ever met during my long years in prison. This is the story of Dr. J., the mass murderer of Steinhoff. How can we dare to predict the behavior of man? We may predict the movements of a machine, of an automaton. More than this, we may even try to predict the mechanisms or dynamisms of the human psyche as well. But man is more than psyche. Freedom, however, is not the last word. Freedom is only part of the story and half of the truth. Freedom is but the negative aspect of the whole phenomenon whose positive aspect is responsibleness. In fact, freedom is in danger of degenerating into mere arbitrariness unless it is lived in terms of responsibleness. That is why I recommend that the Statue of Liberty on the East Coast be supplemented by a Statue of Responsibility on the West Coast. The Psychiatric Credo
There is nothing conceivable which would so condition a man as to leave him without the slightest freedom. Therefore, a residue of freedom, however limited it may be, is left to man in neurotic and even psychotic cases. Indeed, the innermost core of the patient's personality is not even touched by a psychosis. An incurably psychotic individual may lose his usefulness, but yet retain the dignity of a human being. This is my psychiatric credo. Without it I should not think it worth while to be a psychiatrist. For whose sake? Just for the sake of a damaged brain machine which cannot be repaired? If the patient were not definitely more, euthanasia would be justified. Psychiatry Rehumanized For too long a time, for half a century, in fact, psychiatry tried to interpret the human mind merely as a mechanism, and consequently the therapy of mental disease merely in terms of a technique. I believe this dream has been dreamt out. What now begins to loom on the horizon are not the sketches of a psychologized medicine, but rather those of a humanized psychiatry. A doctor, however, who would still interpret his own role mainly as that of a technician, would confess that he sees in his patient nothing more than a machine, instead of seeing the human being behind the disease. A human being is not one thing among others. Things determine each other, but man is ultimately self-determining. What he becomes, within the limits of endowment and environment, he has made out of himself. In the concentration camps, for example, in this living laboratory and on this testing ground, we watched and witnessed some of our comrades behave like swine, while others behaved like saints. Man has both potentialities within himself. Which one is actualized depends on decisions, but not on conditions. Our generation is realistic, for we have come to know man as he really is. After all, man is that being who invented the gas chambers of Auschwitz. However, he is also that being who entered those gas chambers upright, with the Lord's Prayer, or the Shema Yisrael, on his lips. Postscript 1984 The Case for a Tragic Optimism This chapter is based on a lecture I presented at the Third World Congress of Logotherapy, Regensburg University, West Germany, June 1983 dedicated to the memory of Edith Weisskopf-Jolson, whose pioneering efforts in logotherapy in the United States began as early as 1955, and whose contributions to the field have been invaluable. Let us first ask ourselves what should be understood by a tragic optimism. In brief, it means that one is and remains optimistic in spite of the tragic triad, as it is called in logotherapy a triad which consists of those aspects of human existence which may be circumscribed by one, pain, two, guilt, and three, death. This chapter, in fact, raises the question, how is it possible to say yes to life in spite of all that? How, to pose the question differently, can life retain its potential meaning in spite of its tragic aspects? After all, saying yes to life in spite of everything to use the phrase in which the title of a German book of mine is couched, presupposes that life is potentially meaningful under any conditions, even those which are most miserable. And this in turn presupposes the human capacity to creatively turn life's negative aspects into something positive or constructive. 
In other words, what matters is to make the best of any given situation. The best, however, is that which in Latin is called optimum. Hence the reason I speak of a tragic optimism, that is, an optimism in the face of tragedy, and in view of the human potential which at its best always allows for 1. turning suffering into a human achievement and accomplishment, 2. deriving from guilt the opportunity to change oneself for the better, and 3. deriving from life's transitoriness an incentive to take responsible action. It must be kept in mind, however, that optimism is not anything to be commanded or ordered. One cannot even force oneself to be optimistic indiscriminately, against all odds, against all hope. And what is true for hope is also true for the other two components of the triad, inasmuch as faith and love cannot be commanded or ordered either. To the European, it is a characteristic of the American culture that, again and again, one is commanded and ordered to be happy. But happiness cannot be pursued, it must ensue. One must have a reason to be happy. Once the reason is found, however, one becomes happy automatically. As we see, a human being is not one in pursuit of happiness, but rather in search of a reason to become happy, last but not least, through actualizing the potential meaning inherent and dormant in a given situation. This need for a reason is similar in another specifically human phenomenon, laughter. If you want anyone to laugh, you have to provide him with a reason. For example, you have to tell him a joke. In no way is it possible to evoke real laughter by urging him, or having him urge himself, to laugh. Doing so would be the same as urging people posed in front of a camera to say, cheese, only to find that in the finished photographs their faces are frozen in artificial smiles. In logotherapy, such a behavior pattern is called hyperintention. It plays an important role in the causation of sexual neurosis, be it frigidity or impotence. The more a patient, instead of forgetting himself through giving himself, directly strives for orgasm, that is, sexual pleasure, the more this pursuit of sexual pleasure becomes self-defeating. Indeed, what is called the pleasure principle is rather a fun spoiler. Once an individual's search for a meaning is successful, it not only renders him happy, but also gives him the capability to cope with suffering. And what happens if one's groping for a meaning has been in vain? This may well result in a fatal condition. Let us recall, for instance, what sometimes happened in extreme situations such as prisoner of war camps or concentration camps. In the first, as I was told by American soldiers, a behavior pattern crystallized to which they referred as give up itis. In the concentration camps, this behavior was paralleled by those who, one morning at five, refused to get up and go to work, and instead stayed in the hut, on the straw, wet with urine and feces. Nothing, neither warnings nor threats, could induce them to change their minds. And then something typical occurred. They took out a cigarette from deep down in a pocket, where they had hidden it, and started smoking. At that moment we knew that for the next forty-eight hours or so, we would watch them dying. Meaning orientation had subsided, and consequently the seeking of immediate pleasure had taken over. Is this not reminiscent of another parallel, a parallel that confronts us day by day? I think of those youngsters who, on a worldwide scale, refer to themselves as the no-future generation. To be sure, it is not just a cigarette to which they resort, it is drugs. 
In fact, the drug scene is one aspect of a more general mass phenomenon, namely the feeling of meaninglessness resulting from a frustration of our existential needs, which in turn has become a universal phenomenon in our industrial societies. Today it is not only logotherapists who claim that the feeling of meaninglessness plays an ever-increasing role in the etiology of neurosis. As Irvin D. Yalom of Stanford University states in Existential Psychotherapy, of 40 consecutive patients applying for therapy at a psychiatric outpatient clinic, 12, 30%, had some major problem involving meaning, as adjudged from self-ratings, therapists, or independent judges. Basic Books, New York, 1980, page 448. Thousands of miles east of Palo Alto, the situation differs only by 1%. The most recent pertinent statistics indicate that in Vienna, 29% of the population complain that meaning is missing from their lives. As to the causation of the feeling of meaninglessness, one may say, albeit in an oversimplifying vein, that people have enough to live by, but nothing to live for. They have the means, but no meaning. To be sure, some do not even have the means. In particular, I think of the mass of people who are today unemployed. Fifty years ago I published a study devoted to a specific type of depression I had diagnosed in cases of young patients suffering from what I called unemployment neurosis. And I could show that this neurosis really originated in a twofold erroneous identification. Being jobless was equated with being useless, and being useless was equated with having a meaningless life. Consequently, whenever I succeeded in persuading the patients to volunteer in youth organizations, adult education, public libraries, and the like, in other words, as soon as they could fill their abundant free time with some sort of unpaid but meaningful activity, their depression disappeared, although their economic situation had not changed and their hunger was the same. The truth is that man does not live by welfare alone. Along with unemployment neurosis, which is triggered by an individual's socio-economic situation, there are other types of depression which are traceable back to psychodynamic or biochemical conditions, whichever the case may be. Accordingly, psychotherapy and pharmacotherapy are indicated respectively. Insofar as the feeling of meaninglessness is concerned, however, we should not overlook and forget that, per se, it is not a matter of pathology. Rather than being the sign and symptom of a neurosis, it is, I would say, the proof of one's humanness. But although it is not caused by anything pathological, it may well cause a pathological reaction. In other words, it is potentially pathogenic. Just consider the mass neurotic syndrome so pervasive in the young generation. There is ample empirical evidence that the three facets of this syndrome, depression, aggression, addiction, are due to what is called in logotherapy the existential vacuum, a feeling of emptiness and meaninglessness. It goes without saying that not each and every case of depression is to be traced back to a feeling of meaninglessness, nor does suicide, in which depression sometimes eventuates, always result from an existential vacuum. But even if each and every case of suicide had not been undertaken out of a feeling of meaninglessness, it may well be that an individual's impulse to take his life would have been overcome had he been aware of some meaning and purpose worth living for. If thus a strong meaning orientation plays a decisive role in the prevention of suicide, what about intervention in cases in which there is a suicide risk?
As a young doctor, I spent four years in Austria's largest state hospital, where I was in charge of the pavilion in which severely depressed patients were accommodated, most of them having been admitted after a suicide attempt. I once calculated that I must have explored twelve thousand patients during those four years. What accumulated was quite a store of experience, from which I still draw whenever I am confronted with someone who is prone to suicide. I explained to such a person that patients have repeatedly told me how happy they were that the suicide attempt had not been successful. Weeks, months, years later, they told me, it turned out that there was a solution to their problem, an answer to their question, a meaning to their life. Even if things only take such a good turn in one of a thousand cases, my explanation continues, who can guarantee that in your case it will not happen one day, sooner or later? But in the first place, you have to live to see the day on which it may happen. So you have to survive in order to see that day dawn. And from now on, the responsibility for survival does not leave you. Regarding the second facet of the mass neurotic syndrome, aggression, let me cite an experiment once conducted by Carolyn Wood Sheriff. She had succeeded in artificially building up mutual aggressions between groups of Boy Scouts, and observed that the aggressions only subsided when the youngsters dedicated themselves to a collective purpose, that is, the joint task of dragging out of the mud a carriage in which food had to be brought to their camp. Immediately they were not only challenged, but also united by a meaning they had to fulfill. Footnote. For further information on this experiment, see Victor E. Frankel, The Unconscious God, New York, Simon & Schuster, 1978, page 140 and Victor E. Frankel, The Unheard Cry for Meaning, New York, Simon & Schuster, 1978, page 36. As for the third issue, addiction, I am reminded of the findings presented by Anne-Marie von Forstmeier, who noted that, as evidenced by tests and statistics, 90% of the alcoholics she studied had suffered from an abysmal feeling of meaninglessness. Of the drug addicts studied by Stanley Krippner, one hundred percent believed that things seemed meaningless. Footnote. For further information, see The Unconscious God, pages 97 to 100, and The Unheard Cry for Meaning, pages 26 to 28. Now let us turn to the question of meaning itself. To begin with, I would like to clarify that, in the first place, the logotherapist is concerned with the potential meaning inherent and dormant in all the single situations one has to face throughout his or her life. Therefore, I will not be elaborating here on the meaning of one's life as a whole, although I do not deny that such a long-range meaning does exist. To invoke an analogy, consider a movie. It consists of thousands upon thousands of individual pictures, and each of them makes sense and carries a meaning. Yet the meaning of the whole film cannot be seen before its last sequence is shown. However, we cannot understand the whole film without having first understood each of its components, each of the individual pictures. Isn't it the same with life? Doesn't the final meaning of life, too, reveal itself, if at all only at its end, on the verge of death? And doesn't this final meaning, too, depend on whether or not the potential meaning of each single situation has been actualized to the best of the respective individual's knowledge and belief? The fact remains that meaning and its perception, as seen from the logotherapeutic angle, is completely down to earth, rather than afloat in the air, or resident in an ivory tower. 
Sweepingly, I would locate the cognition of meaning, of a personal meaning of a concrete situation, midway between an aha experience along the lines of Carl Bühler's concept and a gestalt perception, say along the lines of Max Wertheimer's theory. The perception of meaning differs from the classical concept of gestalt perception insofar as the latter implies the sudden awareness of a figure on a ground, whereas the perception of meaning as I see it more specifically boils down to becoming aware of a possibility against the background of reality, or to express it in plain words, to becoming aware of what can be done about a given situation. And how does a human being go about finding meaning? As Charlotte Bueller has stated, all we can do is study the lives of people who seem to have found their answers to the questions of what ultimately human life is about, as against those who have not. Basic Theoretical Concepts of Humanistic Psychology, American Psychologist, 26, April 1971, page 378. In addition to such a biographical approach, however, we may as well embark on a biological approach. Logotherapy conceives of conscience as a prompter which, if need be, indicates the direction in which we have to move in a given life situation. In order to carry out such a task, conscience must apply a measuring stick to the situation one is confronted with, and this situation has to be evaluated in the light of a set of criteria, in the light of a hierarchy of values. These values, however, cannot be espoused and adopted by us on a conscious level. They are something that we are. They have crystallized in the course of the evolution of our species. They are founded on our biological past and are rooted in our biological depth. Conrad Lorenz might have had something similar in mind when he developed the concept of a biological a priori. And when both of us recently discussed my own view on the biological foundation of the valuing process, he enthusiastically expressed his accord. In any case, if a pre-reflective axiological self-understanding exists, we may assume that it is ultimately anchored in our biological heritage. As logotherapy teaches, there are three main avenues on which one arrives at meaning in life. The first is by creating a work or by doing a deed. The second is by experiencing something or encountering someone. In other words, meaning can be found not only in work, but also in love. Edith Weisskopf-Jolson observed in this context that the logotherapeutic notion that experiencing can be as valuable as achieving is therapeutic because it compensates for our one-sided emphasis on the external world of achievement at the expense of the internal world of experience. The Place of Logotherapy in the World Today, the International Forum for Logotherapy, Volume 1, Number 3, 1980, pages 3 to 7. Most important, however, is the third avenue to meaning in life. Even the helpless victim of a hopeless situation, facing a fate he cannot change, may rise above himself, may grow beyond himself, and by so doing, change himself. He may turn a personal tragedy into a triumph. Again it was Edith Weiskopf Jolson who, as mentioned on page 136, once expressed the hope that logotherapy may help counteract certain unhealthy trends in the present-day culture of the United States, where the incurable sufferer is given very little opportunity to be proud of his suffering and to consider it ennobling rather than degrading, so that he is not only unhappy but also ashamed of being unhappy.
For a quarter of a century I ran the neurological department of a general hospital and bore witness to my patients' capacity to turn their predicaments into human achievements. In addition to such practical experience, empirical evidence is also available which supports the possibility that one may find meaning in suffering. Researchers at the Yale University School of Medicine have been impressed by the number of prisoners of war of the Vietnam War who explicitly claimed that although their captivity was extraordinarily stressful, filled with torture, disease, malnutrition, and solitary confinement, they nevertheless benefited from the captivity experience, seeing it as a growth experience. W. H. Sledge, J. A. Boydston, and A. J. Rabe, Self-Concept Changes Related to War Captivity, Archive of General Psychiatry, 37, 1980, pages 430 to 443. But the most powerful arguments in favor of a tragic optimism are those which in Latin are called argumenta ad hominem. Jerry Long, to cite an example, is a living testimony to the defiant power of the human spirit, as it is called in logotherapy. Footnote, the defiant power of the human spirit was in fact the title of a paper presented by Long at the Third World Congress of Logotherapy in June 1983. To quote the Texarkana Gazette, Jerry Long has been paralyzed from his neck down since a diving accident which rendered him a quadriplegic three years ago. He was 17 when the accident occurred. Today Long can use his mouth stick to type. He attends two courses at community college via a special telephone. The intercom allows Long to both hear and participate in class discussions. He also occupies his time by reading, watching television, and writing. And in a letter I received from him, he writes, I view my life as being abundant with meaning and purpose. The attitude that I adopted on that fateful day has become my personal credo for life. I broke my neck. It didn't break me. I am currently enrolled in my first psychology course in college. I believe that my handicap will only enhance my ability to help others. I know that without the suffering, the growth that I have achieved would have been impossible. Is this to say that suffering is indispensable to the discovery of meaning? In no way. I only insist that meaning is available in spite of, nay, even through, suffering, provided, as noted in Part 2 of this book, that the suffering is unavoidable. If it is avoidable, the meaningful thing to do is to remove its cause, for unnecessary suffering is masochistic rather than heroic. If, on the other hand, one cannot change a situation that causes his suffering, he could still choose his attitude. Footnote. I won't forget an interview I once heard on Austrian TV, given by a Polish cardiologist who, during World War II, had helped organize the Warsaw Ghetto upheaval. What a heroic deed, exclaimed the reporter. Listen, calmly replied the doctor, to take a gun and shoot is no great thing, but if the SS leads you to a gas chamber or to a mass grave to execute you on the spot, and you can't do anything about it, except for going your way with dignity, you see, this is what I would call heroism. Attitudinal heroism, so to speak. Long had not been chosen to break his neck, but he did decide not to let himself be broken by what had happened to him. As we see, the priority stays with creatively changing the situation that causes us to suffer, but the superiority goes to the know-how-to-suffer, if need be. 
and there is empirical evidence that, literally, the man in the street is of the same opinion. Austrian public opinion pollsters recently reported that those held in highest esteem by most of the people interviewed are neither the great artists nor the great scientists, neither the great statesmen nor the great sports figures, but those who master a hard lot with their heads held high. In turning to the second aspect of the tragic triad, namely guilt, I would like to depart from a theological concept that has always been fascinating to me. I refer to what is called mysterium iniquitatis, meaning, as I see it, that a crime in the final analysis remains inexplicable inasmuch as it cannot be fully traced back to biological, psychological, and or sociological factors. Totally explaining one's crime would be tantamount to explaining away his or her guilt, and to seeing in him or her not a free and responsible human being, but a machine to be repaired. Even criminals themselves abhor this treatment, and prefer to be held responsible for their deeds. From a convict serving his sentence in an Illinois penitentiary, I received a letter in which he deplored that the criminal never has a chance to explain himself. He has offered a variety of excuses to choose from. Society is blamed, and in many instances the blame is put on the victim. Furthermore, when I addressed the prisoners in San Quentin, I told them that, You are human beings like me, and as such you were free to commit a crime, to become guilty. Now, however, you are responsible for overcoming guilt by rising above it, by growing beyond yourselves, by changing for the better. They felt understood. Footnote. See also Joseph B. Fabry, The Pursuit of Meaning, New York, Harper and Row, 1980. And from Frank E. W., an ex-prisoner, I received a note which stated that he had started a logotherapy group for ex-felons. We are twenty-seven strong, and the newer ones are staying out of prison through the peer strength of those of us from the original group. Only one returned, and he is now free. Footnote. C.F. Victor E. Frankel, The Unheard Cry for Meaning, New York, Simon & Schuster, 1978, pages 42-43. to 43. As for the concept of collective guilt, I personally think that it is totally unjustified to hold one person responsible for the behavior of another person, or a collective of persons. Since the end of World War II, I have not become weary of publicly arguing against the collective guilt concept. Footnote. See also Victor E. Frankel, Psychotherapy and Existentialism, New York, Simon & Schuster, 1967. Sometimes, however, it takes a lot of didactic tricks to detach people from their superstitions. An American woman once confronted me with a reproach, How can you still write some of your books in German, Adolf Hitler's language? In response, I asked her if she had knives in her kitchen, and when she answered that she did, I acted dismayed and shocked, exclaiming, How can you still use knives after so many killers have used them to stab and murder their victims? She stopped objecting to my writing books in German. The third aspect of the tragic triad concerns death, but it concerns life as well, for at any time each of the moments of which life consists is dying, and that moment will never recur. And yet is not this transitoriness a reminder that challenges us to make the best possible use of each moment of our lives? It certainly is, and hence my imperative, live as if you were living for the second time, and had acted as wrongly the first time as you are about to act now.
In fact, the opportunities to act properly, the potentialities to fulfill a meaning, are affected by the irreversibility of our lives. But also the potentialities alone are so affected. For as soon as we have used an opportunity and have actualized a potential meaning, we have done so once and for all. We have rescued it into the past, wherein it has been safely delivered and deposited. In the past, nothing is irretrievably lost, but rather, on the contrary, everything is irrevocably stored and treasured. To be sure, people tend to see only the stubble fields of transitoriness, but overlook and forget the full granaries of the past into which they have brought the harvest of their lives. The deeds done, the loves loved, and last but not least, the sufferings they have gone through with courage and dignity. From this one may see that there is no reason to pity old people. Instead, young people should envy them. It is true that the old have no opportunities, no possibilities in the future. But they have more than that. Instead of possibilities in the future, they have realities in the past, the potentialities they have actualized, the meanings they have fulfilled, the values they have realized. And nothing and nobody can ever remove these assets from the past. In view of the possibility of finding meaning in suffering, life's meaning is an unconditional one, at least potentially. That unconditional meaning, however, is paralleled by the unconditional value of each and every person. It is that which warrants the indelible quality of the dignity of man. Just as life remains potentially meaningful under any conditions, even those which are most miserable, so too does the value of each and every person stay with him or her and it does so because it is based on the values that he or she has realized in the past, and is not contingent on the usefulness that he or she may or may not retain in the present. More specifically, this usefulness is usually defined in terms of functioning for the benefit of society. But today's society is characterized by achievement orientation, and consequently it adores people who are successful and happy, and in particular it adores the young. It virtually ignores the value of all those who are otherwise, and in so doing blurs the decisive difference between being valuable in the sense of dignity and being valuable in the sense of usefulness. If one is not cognizant of this difference and holds that an individual's value stems only from his present usefulness, then, believe me, one owes it only to personal inconsistency not to plead for euthanasia along the lines of Hitler's program, that is to say, mercy-killing of all those who have lost their social usefulness, be it because of old age, incurable illness, mental deterioration, or whatever handicap they may suffer. Confounding the dignity of man with mere usefulness arises from a conceptual confusion that in turn may be traced back to the contemporary nihilism transmitted on many an academic campus and many an analytical couch. Even in the setting of training analyses, such an indoctrination may take place. Nihilism does not contend that there is nothing, but it states that everything is meaningless. And George A. Sargent was right when he promulgated the concept of learned meaninglessness. He himself remembered a therapist who said, George, you must realize that the world is a joke. There is no justice, everything is random. Only when you realize this will you understand how silly it is to take yourself seriously. There is no grand purpose in the universe. It just is. There is no particular meaning in what decision you make today about how to act. Footnote. 
Transference and Countertransference in Logotherapy, the International Forum for Logotherapy, Volume 5, Number 2, Fall-Winter, 1982, pages 115 to 118. One must not generalize such a criticism. In principle, training is indispensable. But if so, therapists should see their task in immunizing the trainee against nihilism rather than inoculating him with a cynicism that is a defense mechanism against their own nihilism. Logotherapists may even conform to some of the training and licensing requirements stipulated by the other schools of psychotherapy. In other words, one may howl with the wolves if need be, but when doing so one should be, I would urge, a sheep in wolf's clothing. There is no need to become untrue to the basic concept of man and the principles of the philosophy of life inherent in logotherapy. Such a loyalty is not hard to maintain in view of the fact that, as Elizabeth S. Lucas once pointed out, throughout the history of psychotherapy there has never been a school as undogmatic as logotherapy. Footnote. Logotherapy is not imposed on those who are interested in psychotherapy, it is not comparable to an oriental bazaar, but rather to a supermarket. In the former, the customer is talked into buying something. In the latter, he is shown and offered various things from which he may pick what he deems usable and valuable. And at the First World Congress of Logotherapy, San Diego, California, November 6th to 8th, 1980, I argued not only for the rehumanization of psychotherapy, but also for what I called the degorification of logotherapy. My interest does not lie in raising parrots that just rehash their master's voice, but rather in passing the torch to independent and inventive, innovative and creative spirits. Sigmund Freud once asserted, Let one attempt to expose a number of the most diverse people uniformly to hunger. With the increase of the imperative urge of hunger, all individual differences will blur and in their stead will appear the uniform expression of the one unstilled urge. Thank heaven, Sigmund Freud was spared knowing the concentration camps from the inside. His subjects lay on a couch designed in the plush style of Victorian culture, not in the filth of Auschwitz. There, the individual differences did not blur, but on the contrary, people became more different. People unmasked themselves, both the swine and the saints. And today you need no longer hesitate to use the word saints. Think of Father Maximilian Kolbe, who was starved and finally murdered by an injection of carbolic acid at Auschwitz, and who in 1983 was canonized. You may be prone to blame me for invoking examples that are the exceptions to the rule, said Omnia pri clara tam difficilia quam rara sunt, but everything great is just as difficult to realize as it is rare to find, reads the last sentence of the Ethics of Spinoza. You may, of course, ask whether we really need to refer to saints. Wouldn't it suffice just to refer to decent people? It is true that they form a minority. More than that, they always will remain a minority. And yet I see therein the very challenge to join the minority, for the world is in a bad state but everything will become still worse unless each of us does his best. So let us be alert, alert in a twofold sense. Since Auschwitz, we know what man is capable of, and since Hiroshima, we know what is at stake.
This concludes the reading of Man's Search for Meaning by Victor E. Frankel. This book was read by Simon Vance. Copyright 1959, 1962, and 1984 by Victor E. Frankel. This unabridged recording of the reading of Man's Search for Meaning was published by arrangement with Dr. Victor Frankel and was produced in 1995 by Blackstone Audiobooks, which holds the copyright there too. Neither this recording nor any part of it may be reproduced or used for any purpose without prior written authorization from Blackstone Audiobooks. If you wish to obtain a mail-order catalogue or additional information pertaining to our expanding line of audiobooks, write Blackstone Audiobooks, Post Office Box 969, Ashland, Oregon, zip code 97520, or call 1-800-SAY-BOOK. That's 1-800-729-2665. Thank you.